my approach to uh, programming, exercise programming has always been to put some stuff together and then start trimming things out. And then I keep trimming things out until I get to the point where if I trim anything more, I, I'm probably going to compromise the program. And then I know it's just right. So uh, simplicity um, uh, is uh, always been important as a programming principle because complicated programs are hard to follow. People don't like them. They, they're um, rarely effective and the simple stuff always seems to work best. You know, it's a focus on quality rather than quantity. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of the Valley to Peak Nutrition Podcast. This week is a real treat. Uh, not only do I think that you're going to gain a tremendous amount of knowledge to support any goal that you have with your training and in trying to improve performance and getting a better understanding and developing a good knowledge of how it all works, but it was a true treat for me to be able to sit down with this week's guest, who is Mike Prevost. I first came across a lot of Mike's information through the Hunt Backcountry podcast a few years ago when Mark and Steve had him on to chat all things rucking, performance, and improving performance while covering ground with a weighted pack. There is no way that I could do justice to introducing Mike and his background here, so I'm going to leave that up to him, uh, which he does in the podcast. He's retired now, but still there is so much out there that he's given to this community of folks to help us understand how to improve with training and 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 hiking and performing well over ground covering ground with weight in a pack that there's a number of resources in there in fact i i reference a guide that he's written several times in the podcast and so i've linked um i've linked those guides here for you to check out they're completely free they're incredibly comprehensive and an excellent resource to have on hand if you've not already seen them i appreciate everyone checking out the episode have no question that you'll learn a ton just like i did if you enjoyed it please leave us a review share it with a friend and if there's other topics that you feel like you'd like to hear covered on here whether it's about nutrition training all of those things um please tell us we would love to be able to put together a podcast that would help you help answer a lot of those questions that you have. So without further ado, uh, here is Mike Prevost and Ruck Training and Improving Our Hiking in the Mountains. Mike, thanks for joining us today on the uh, on the Valley to Peak Nutrition podcast. For those of uh, the folks listening who maybe aren't familiar with you and the work you've done, do you mind introducing yourself and giving giving them a little background as to what your profession was? Oh, okay. Yeah, sure. So I have a PhD in exercise physiology um, with a, a pretty heavy biochemistry background. Uh, that was who I graduated in 1995 from Louisiana State University. Uh, you know, by the time I was wrapping up my PhD, I was really unsure of what I wanted to do with my life. I mean, a PhD is, is really training to become a scientist in the traditional career field is academia, you know, uh, teach at a university, research, that kind of thing. But something was pulling me in, in another direction. You know, I wanted something, uh, I guess maybe a little more active, a little bit more adventurous. And, uh, someone suggested, uh, checking out the military. And so, uh, I, I started checking into military programs for people in my position with that type of an education. And I found a couple of different programs. One was a research physiology program with the Navy and the other was aerospace physiology. And, uh, 
you know, so I applied and found out there was no spots for research physiology, but my recruiter said, Hey, we got a spot for aerospace physiology. Do you want it? And so uh, I asked, first of all, what is aerospace physiology? And, you know, his answer was, well, you know, I'm not sure, but it, I think it has something to do with flying. And uh, at that point I said, Hey, I'll take it. And so I jumped in without really knowing what I was getting into, but as it turns out, it was a great career choice. I was an officer in the medical service corps and really my job was to uh, interpret and apply the science to improve warfighter performance. So uh, I, I got to look at the research and find ways to use uh, the science to improve performance across the wide variety of warfighting specialties. My primary specialty was aviation, but I've worked with uh, Marine Corps ground forces. I've worked with Special Operations Command. I've worked with uh, with uh, Navy Spec Warcom, some of the SEAL teams on the East and West Coast doing some consultation work and uh, various other communities in the Navy. Later in my career, I was fortunate uh, to be assigned to the U.S. Naval Academy as the director of the Human Performance Lab there. And uh, that was... Um, you know, for an exercise physiologist, I was like a kid in a candy store. I had a great exercise physiology lab and I had a, a large population of um, fitness crazed uh, individuals who were ready to try all kinds of different things. And uh, so I got to experiment with lots of different programming, do lots of different lab testing, try different training techniques. Uh, you know, some of that definitely uh involved rucking and ruck training. And uh, so I learned a lot, probably learned more in that tour than uh, really anywhere else in terms of just applied training, what works and what doesn't work. Uh, Cause I had so many guinea pigs to work with. Yeah. And I want to, <clears throat> I want to dive in a little bit to just some of the research you'd done in a little bit, but you know, sometimes I look back like in my own journey of, of life and my career and I think, oh man, you should, you know, I don't want to say pat myself on the back, but I'm sometimes I get proud of where I am, right? I have a family, we have a house, I've built a, yeah. a, a good, a good education, good career. And then I listen to the introduction of Mike Prevost <laughs> and I'm like, oh man, buddy. And, and most people probably don't know this, but uh, you and I have spoke on the phone in the past and you just about had me applying to the same program to do the performance <laughs> nutrition piece of things. And um, I'm sure it would have been a, another awesome route as opposed to what I do now, although I do, I love what I do now. So it's awesome that you were in an environment, like you had said, when you were going through the folks you'd worked with, outlining some of those special ops guys, I'm thinking, man, you had to be like a kid in a candy store because these guys are crazed to try to find the best method to increase their performance and then you've got a guy with the head knowledge to do that and the guinea pigs willing to do the work and you truly get to see what the body's capable of and what works in terms of progressively improving in performance oh yeah it was awesome i couldn't have asked for couldn't have asked for more so there's i mean there's so many directions we could take the conversation there's just so many questions i want to ask you but you know, in the, in the sense of being sensitive to your time and, and really trying to concise things down, kind of broken it up into two things. So one, outlining, because one of the things I love most about you, we talked a little bit about this before we started recording, was I just love how basic and approachable you make training to people. And so it really just gives people the idea that it's available to anyone. It's not just for the special ops guys. And, and I love that. And then the second piece is 
people may not know, but you have a two-part guide as well as a number of other resources available for free online that are bar none, the most comprehensive free resources I've ever seen and the ones that I reference people in our program to the most often. So I'd want to touch on those, but thinking about the basics and simplicity um, of a plan, many people feel like the more they beat themselves in a gym, the more that's going to, or, or on, in the mountains or in training and training in general, the more that they just really beat themselves in training, the more performance improvements that's going to produce. Can you talk a little bit about progressive overload, structured planning, and why this concept of just badgering yourself with no aim really doesn't equate to improved performance? Yeah, well, you know, um, I guess the older I get, the more I appreciate that aspect of training. Um, I guess one of the most important things you can focus on when uh, training for any type of a goal is patience. I mean, it just takes a lot of patience. And the more impatient you are, uh, the more risky your program is going to be and probably the worse it's going to turn out. So uh, I think most people are in too much of a rush. They want to see... results right away and fast results right away. They have uh, maybe a distorted view of what's possible in the short term. And uh, if people just step back a little bit and took a much more patient approach, you could achieve tremendous, tremendous improvements over a long period of time if you just take it slowly. You know, uh, an impatient approach is a recipe for uh, constantly dealing with injuries, you know, constant setbacks uh, through injuries. So, And, you know, I always favor a simple approach. I always favor uh, quality over quantity. You know, if you're just, if your approach is simple and uncomplicated, it's easier to follow. You're putting more effort into the things that are important and not being distracted by lots of moving parts that are not really contributing much to your program. So simplicity and patience, I think, uh, are the keys, you know, and I've seen it time and time again over you know, the 30 plus years I've been working with athletes, those who have a simple approach and are patient and are willing to just do the time with nothing fancy over time, achieve tremendous results. So uh, simplicity and patience, that's what I would say. Did you find in working with the the population that you were working with? Because like, like we talked about, man, a lot of those a lot of the the military guys, like they're used to really, they're willing to invest the work and they're used to doing a lot of really challenging things. Did you find any of them disappointed in the protocols that you would write for them maybe being simpler or less volume than what they had been doing or had hoped they'd been doing? Well, I'll let you in a little secret. That's sometimes uh, when uh, programming... Um, you know, I would write a program, a simple program, and then take a look at it and then consider the psychological aspect and realize I need to spice it up a little bit with some uh, some fancy, maybe hard uh, looking stuff uh, so that the message might be a little bit easier, more easily accepted, you know. So sometimes in some of the programming you'll see out there, uh, there's there's some extra stuff in there that I've that I felt like would be well tolerated, but would give them a taste of that hardcore edge that they were looking for so some of the programs are maybe a little bit more complex than they need to be but there's a reason for it because uh 
you know, if a person finds a program to be acceptable and they're excited about it, they're going to do it. Uh, so sometimes you have to put a little bit of edge in a program just for that reason. And, and that's okay. You know, you just have to be uh, conscious about it and make sure there's enough quality and that the, the fancy stuff or the edgy stuff you put in there is not too risky. So what, like, what would an example of that be if you're going to add, like if you were going to add, let's say that you'd created a program for one of those guys and it seemed to you like, you know, maybe these guys are going to look at this and feel like it's a little too easy. It's not going to yeah. engage them from a mental aspect. What are the, what are some examples of things you would throw in to challenge that part? So it would keep them at least mentally engaged to have that consistency. Yeah. I like uh short metabolic conditioning type sessions uh, done not too frequently. Maybe uh, I give them a, a hard Metcon session like once a week, uh, depending on how the program is put together, maybe twice a week. It depends on the, the person and what their goals are, but movements that are safe, that are, that they're not going to wreck themselves with, but something that they can challenge themselves with and, and feel like, you know, after they've done it, they've really done something, but I, I would always target something maybe between, like 10 minutes and at the longest stretching out to about 20 minutes. Uh, not a, not a super high intensity Metcon session, but kind of a medium high intensity Metcon session that, uh, that's safe, but you feel like you've done some good work with it. You know, like a simple example, one of my favorites is, uh, to grab a 24 kilogram kettlebell and just cover a mile with it as fast as you can walk, run, doesn't matter. Um, but holding in a suitcase, carry position, put it down as many times as you want, stop as many times as you want, switch hands as many times as you want, but carry that thing one mile as fast as you can. And uh, super simple workout, but tremendous conditioning benefit. And, uh, you know, those that can perform well at that uh, simple task have pretty well-rounded fitness. So that would be an example of one thing I might throw in there that would be, um, you know, give them a little taste of something that they might want that won't wreck the rest of their week. Mm -hmm. And so like, for, for example, if somebody's not familiar with what metabolic conditioning is, how would you explain it? Um, it's, it's, um, it's high intensity work in a short period of time so that you, uh, you get a tremendous amount of energy expenditure in a short period of time. It's cardiovascular, it's strength. Um, but the, the idea is, uh, a hard effort over a short period of time, anywhere from like say five to 20 minutes. Yeah. And, and in your guide, like you, you do again, I just love the guide. So I'll probably mention this 180 times and link it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, oh. But in, in the guide you give, man, if I remember right, it's like 10 to 15 different examples of a 10 minute Metcon, 10 minute metabolic conditioning thing that someone could throw in on, you know, any side or at any point in their week as a part of their conditioning program. So, you know, if, if folks are interested in seeing some more examples of that, they can jump in that guide, look at what those uh, examples are and, and implement them however they see fit. Yeah. And those are just some, some things that just came to mind, some things I've tried or, or had uh, other folks try. Uh, there's literally thousands of them, but the key is uh, safe movements, something that you're not going to injure yourself with. And, uh, something that's not going to ruin the rest of that week's training, you know? So, uh, there's, and there's plenty that can be done that fit that, that those criteria. Yeah. From you, you'd mentioned simplicity and patience from a simplicity standpoint, what are some variables that you would suggest someone manipulates on a week to week basis as a part of their program to continually progressively improve performance? 
Um, it depends on, you know, if we're training for strength or endurance or, you know, what, what we're training for. Um, um, you know, for strength training, I like to keep it super, super simple, um, especially for training for performance. So there's push, pull, squat, hip hinge, and core. So there's just, there's five movements you need to focus on and that's it. So if you think in terms of how do I design a program, well, I want some push, I want some pull, some hip hinge, I want some squatting movements and some core movements. If I have all of those in there and I'm choosing big dynamic movements, um, I don't need a lot of uh, variety of different movements, or I can if that's what I, that's what I want to do. But um, by focusing on, on those five movements, you can sit down when you're writing a training program and just click them off. You know, so we're talking about between two to eight sets, ideally uh, between three and 15 repetitions, um, 30 seconds to five minutes between sets, depending on uh, loading and, and what you're trying to do. And you can easily scribble down a program that works. And typically uh, somewhere around every three to four days before you're training a uh, particular movement again, unless you're on a, a specialized program, um, like uh, say Dan John's easier strength where you're using pretty low intensity so you can train very, very frequently but with traditional strength training, you know, five movements, two to two to eight sets, three to eight sets, somewhere in that uh, range, you know, three to 15 reps, 30 seconds to five minutes rest. That's it. It's very simple. Um, and, and the other thing is to keep the load wavy so that you're not in the same repetition range all the time. Any, you know, anything beyond that is mostly fluff. <laughs> So basically you're trying to manipulate variables like intensity or duration or frequency to, you know, the, the term that I'm most familiar with is progressive overload, right? There's a structure and a format to it that just challenges what you'd been doing pri previously by just a little bit and little bits done over time, of course, add up in a dramatic fashion. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, you know, if you have a program that has a lot of variety, like you like to change uh, lifts uh, pretty often and try lots of different exercises. I like the idea of having a standard few exercises that you roll in pretty often and and uh, keeping records. So I don't know, maybe it's bench press, maybe it's pull ups, you know, whatever it happens to be, maybe a deadlift um, and using that to track progress and uh, and see how, basically how your strength's progressing over time. If you're a person that doesn't do a lot of variety, maybe you like the uh, basic power lifts and you do those all the time. Well, then it's easy. You can keep a log and you know that you're making progress with strength. So, um, uh, but I, I think at some point there has to be some consistency in some baseline exercises to continue to drive strength up with consistency in certain movement patterns. And, uh, and always, always recommend keeping a log, you know, so that you know you know that you're making progress, even a small amount of progress. Again, it's patience, you know, it's just a, a small amount over a long period of time can, can add up to tremendous results. You know, if you're, you're gaining 10 pounds a year on your bench press, you know, in 10 years, it's a hundred pounds. So that, that's the way we should be thinking, not, uh, you know, 20 pounds on my bench press this, this month or whatever, or adding five pounds every week to my bench press or whatever lift, you know, uh, long-term patience.
Yeah, I, I, I mean, I just I love that. <laughs> I think realistic expectations is important. And, you know, of course, on the nutrition front, a lot of people are, you know, they'll, they'll be interested in the program from either a training standpoint, in other words, trying to get in shape, which usually involves weight loss, weight gain, and or putting on some muscle and the nutrition strategies approach with that. And I've often found that what the expectation of many of us is, is quite different from what reality is, right? And it's it's not even that, and I think one of the biggest problems with that is that people then associate, if they're not achieving what that unrealistic expectation is, then there's either something wrong with them or there's something wrong with the programming. And so they change things 999 times in a year rather than developing a realistic and an honest expectation following that for a year or more and then letting the results be what they are which is probably right on par with what's realistic in terms of of progress like you take weight for example you get a lot of programs out there that'll promote 30 pounds in 30 days of weight loss never really understanding that some of that could have been muscle mass right something many people don't want to lose if the if the if the diet approach is is too significant and then starting to adjust the expectation of saying, well, why don't we focus on retaining muscle mass and aim for a loss of one to two pounds a week, eight to 10 a month, you know, then you're going to have much better strength. You're going to have much better energy during your training, and it's going to ultimately get you where you want to be at the end. So yeah, I love, I love what you're saying on that front. Yeah. If it's worth doing, it's worth doing for at least six to eight weeks. You know, um, if you can't commit to at least six to eight weeks of a program, uh, that don't even start that program. It's not for you. It's not the right program, you know? So, uh, because what happens is, uh, people have, like you said, irrational thoughts about progress. They get a little nervous about maybe I'm not making progress. Maybe I should tweak it a little bit. I think you should spend all the effort up front, really investigating the program, um, determining if, if this is, a the right program for you. Does this program make sense? Do you like what they're saying? Is it recommended by people that you respect? And then once you do all of that homework, then just commit, man, you know, give it at least six to eight weeks, no change in the program, no getting off the program to something that suddenly looks better. Once you commit, just do it. And, uh, you know, um, one, one, one of my mentors, Dan John likes to say everything works, but it works for about six to eight weeks. And I, I believe that's true. I mean, I've, in my 30, 40 years of training, I've tried so many different programs. I can't even tell you. And I've had, success with lots of very uh, different types of programs as long as i stuck with them you know Mm -hmm. you stick with it for six to eight weeks you're going to see some progress Uh, so if 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 you think about you know like a a lot of the folks that would listen to this are involved with or interested in some kind of outdoor activity whether that's running long distances in the mountains but most of and the majority of folks are interested in some type of backpacking yeah if there's a trip right whether it's hunting or just general backpacking through hiking whatever if there's a trip on the calendar for someone that would be listening or if they are preparing for a full season, like you take folks who do a lot of backcountry hunting, you know, sometimes those yeah. can run from August until early the next year. That's a lot of miles covered. Yeah. How long, how, how much should they forecast? How much time should they give themselves to prepare for that season or to prepare for that trip? 
to, you know, in a way that allows them to accomplish whatever goals they need so they can make that trip go well? How long do they need ahead of the trip to begin training to realistically get themselves in a position where there's enough time to train without risking injury? Oh boy. Uh, well, it depends on the starting point. You know, when I sit down and do programming with somebody and uh, I learned this from Dan John and, and from, you know, countless sessions sitting down with individuals, it's super simple. I'm trying to establish point A and point B. Point A is where you are and point B is where you want to be. And if I have that in mind and I steer the conversation in that direction, the programs almost write themselves. And, uh, you know, we come to some real clarity between myself and the person I'm working with on what they need to do. So I hate to say that answer depends, but it really does depend, you know. Yeah. Um, what, what the RUC training uh, research has shown is if somebody's got a good baseline of strength and endurance training, they're probably going to be pretty good at rucking with uh, minimal ruck training. Um, and they might surprise themselves on how well they can do without really um, a lot of ruck specific training. Um, if a person doesn't have a background in strength and endurance training, it's going to be a lot tougher. If they have a background only in strength training, that's probably better than the background in only endurance training. That, that um, was uh, something that really surprised me in my early personal experience with rucking and early uh, uh, experience of looking at the research literature and rucking, you know, so it depends on the background. You know, I first became interested in load bearing uh, marches and rucking back in 97 or 98. I was attending the Marine Corps Mountain Warfare Training Center's course on uh, mountain rescue. And this is up in Bridgeport, California. The schoolhouse is about 8,000 feet and you hike up to the training area about 10,000 feet. And the way this the day was went is we'd wake up early in the morning, do some running and calisthenics, go get breakfast, a little bit of classroom time. Then we'd throw some ropes and helmets and climbing gear, MREs, water, some other supplies and backpacks, and we would march up the hill to the training area. And I noticed something really interesting early on. Uh, what I noticed is that the people who were ahead of me on the runs were not the same people who were ahead of me in the rucks. Um, there was kind of like a, a flip of the individuals who were leading. So I can remember one guy in particular who was always off the back on the runs. I mean, we were always spitting him out pretty early on. He's not a very good runner. The first day we put all that gear on and started walking up the hill, he's out front, not suffering at all. He's leaving us all in the dust. And that really puzzled me. And I noticed also some, some of the um, little skinny guys who were crushing everybody in the runs are falling off the back on the rucks. So what a lot of people think, and it's, it's still pretty pervasive, is that if you want to be able to, uh, you know, to ruck loads in the mountains or difficult terrain, just run a lot. And uh, that's not the case at all. <laughs> and the research has been pretty clear on, on that. And uh, my experience has been pretty clear on that, that um, unloaded running, um, especially when you get to loads uh, in excess of 30% uh, of body weight, Unloaded running has very little to do with rucking performance. I love uh, so I love that. I want to come back to it, but I know that specifically in and I don't want to just call it out out the backpack hunting world, but there yeah. are some pretty high level figures in that world who run a ton, 
And I think the perception is because they are so incredibly fit, they are a great hunter, which of course really has nothing to do with how fit you are. You can be yeah. as fit as you want to be. It doesn't mean that you're going to be able to, to be a great hunter. But I think I, I've seen and met and worked with many people who are under the assumption that if they can cover miles on their feet, even even not on pavement, right, even on dirt yeah. running, that's going to somehow carry over into, one, the ability to go deep or to pack in far, even without, uh, even, even just with camp, or... Yeah. Or B, that somehow is going to put their their pulmonary system, their lungs, in the type of shape that it needs to. They think that 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 the ability for aerobic capacity is going to translate into the ability to haul out 80, 100, 100 plus pounds on their back. And like you highlighted so well, it's not necessarily the case. Yeah, not not at all. Um, you know, rucking uh, rucking is not like a singular activity. It, uh, it depends on weight and terrain. So if we're talking about carrying 20, 30 pounds, that's a completely different conversation than carrying, you know, 80, 90, hundred pounds and the physical abilities you need for those two things are different. So, you know, putting 20, 30 pounds on your, on your back and walking 20 miles is a lot different than, you know, carrying hundred pounds, uh, for, you know, any distance and the physical abilities you need for those two are completely different, but, um, you know, so, it, it's, it's a different thing, you know, now I, I can understand there would be circumstances where you, uh, you need both, like you need to be able to walk for long distances with a lighter load and then uh, maybe carry um, 150 pounds of whatever you just shot in the mountains back, you know, so you need to be able to do both. But the interesting uh, thing that's been found in the research literature is if you're trained to carry the heavy loads, that carries over pretty well to uh, long distances with lighter loads. In the context of uh, strength training and running program combined with some rucking. So, um, you know, most of this research has been done with military populations. I mean, nobody's gonna spend money to uh, fund ruck training research for the general public. This is, this is about, uh, you know, the military and carrying loads on your back to go into combat and survive combat. So, you know, in military populations, we lift weights and we run. I mean, that's, everybody does, you know, all combat operations, all our, all combat personnel, that's sort of the basis of their program. Even though nobody's um, lacing up tennis shoes and putting on running shorts and running in battle, if you're moving in, in battle or in combat, you're moving with a load, period. That's the way it is, but we still run a lot because it's hard to schedule rucks. It's equipment intensive. Um, you know, you need medical support and uh, supplies. You got to have vehicles following all that kinds of stuff. So um, if the military has always been interested in uh, a way to train for rucking that doesn't involve just rucking, can we do uh, the simple stuff, you know, do some workouts in the gym and do some rucking, I mean, some running, but then supplement it with a little rucking here and there. And can we, can we drive performance that way? And, you know, the good news and the answer is yes, absolutely. So, um, you know, what's been found consistently in the research is in the context of a very simple, reasonable strength training and running program, um, you don't have to ruck very often. Once every two weeks has been found to be pretty effective if you have an effective run training program and strength training program. Um, so it doesn't have to be that often. So I understand when people do uh, lots of running, it, 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 it can make sense in a certain context. 
I got so many questions. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I guess one question, whenever you were, whenever they were researching this, yeah. what was the average pack weight? And this may be all over the board, but average pack weight that some of these folks would be carrying whenever they were doing some of that rock research. Yeah, it really is all over the board. Um, but all, lots of a wide variety of loads have been studied. Um, you know, from 20 to 30 pounds to over hundred pounds. Um, uh, and, uh, and, and some studies, you know, um, a wide variety of loads were used, <laughs> you know, like, uh, for example, there's studies comparing light ruck training to heavy ruck training. And, uh, you know, the heavy ruck training would typically be, uh, around 85 to 95 pounds and the lighter ruck training would typically be, you know, from uh, 25 to maybe 40 pounds, something in that range. Um, so a wide variety of uh, loads have been used, but, you know, what's consistently been found is that training with a heavy ruck translates to performance with a heavy ruck, of course, mm -hmm. but also to longer duration performance with a light ruck. But if you train with a light load only, you get better with a light load, but you don't improve nearly as much with a heavy load. <laughs> So the heavy stuff translates to both, but the light stuff mainly only to light, light, uh, to light load, to light load performance. One of the things that you had written in your guide was you said heavy loads strength matters more than aerobic fitness. And then at yeah. lighter loads, aerobic fitness matters more than strength. And this, again, I, being in nutrition, I know sometimes we can get nuanced at levels that really don't matter at the end of the day. So if that's your reply, I understand is there a crossover where or a weight crossover where it starts to say okay you're you're improving more here but less so here in terms of aerobic and fit uh, in in terms of aerobic fitness versus strength or, or what at what point or at what pack weight on average and that may be percent of a person's individual body weight do you start to see okay strength is playing more of a role you're improving that more than aerobic fitness at this point yeah, I think you can definitely say that. And I think, I think you can narrow it down to uh, a pretty good approximation that hasn't been directly studied. I mean, not directly, but, um, it's not hard to pinpoint, um, based on the data we have and a little bit of knowledge of physiology, I would put it at that crossover point, probably somewhere around 30% of body weight. Uh, once you hit 30% of body weight, uh, less than 30% of body weight, um, aerobic, performance is going to be, um, maybe a little bit more important than strength. Um, uh, uh, anything above 30% of body weight strength is going to start to become more important than the aerobic performance. And of course, you know, as you get heavier strength is going to become much more important. And as you get lighter aerobic performance is going to become much more important. So 30% of body weight is kind of that crossover point, I think. Interesting. You'd mentioned earlier, you, you were, you'd mentioned where you guys were at the, um, the training facility and you always noticed that one guy in particular would be behind whenever you were running, but then you would start rucking and all of a sudden this guy would be smoking people in your guide. You highlight six characteristics or six features, some of which we can't control, like some are genetic height, for example, in which indicators, I guess would be a better word, six indicators that would guess or predict how good someone would be at rucking based on their physiology or based on their build. Can you highlight those six? And if someone, so for me, for example, I'm five foot six, 
I get destroyed by my friends simply because I've got a right. I've got a double time to keep up with their single stride. Two of my strides make up one of theirs. So obviously height or uh, length of leg or distance of your step or whatever would be one of those. Are there things that guys like me could do to bridge that gap and still keep up with friends who maybe have some of these genetic makeups that would make them a quote unquote better hiker, better rucker than me? Yeah, well, well, you you uh, keyed in on one of the most important ones is height. You know, um, it's going to be hard to beat that big 6'5", 230-pound guy. You know, once he puts a pack on, he's just going to crush uh, everybody. And it's just not a whole lot you can do about that. You know, uh, he's just built for it. Um, you know, I, I've done a lot of uh, uh, VO2 max testing in the lab on the treadmill where, you, you know, you start at a slower speed and you gradually increase the speed every one to three minutes until exhaustion. And uh, I've noted that most everybody can hold uh, a walking gait at four miles an hour. Um, by the time you get to four and a half miles an hour, some people are having to switch over to a jog type of a gait from a walk to a jog. By the time you hit five miles an hour, very few people are still walking. Um, and the difference between a walking gait and a running gait is in a walking gait, one foot's always in contact with the ground. A running gait, both feet are off the ground at the same time during a certain part of the uh, gait cycle. When you shift from a walk gait to a run gait, even though it's a small increase in speed, energy expenditure goes up tremendously. Um, and so the, the cost of doing that goes up a lot. The cost of running is a lot higher than uh, walking. So, you know, a guy who's 6'5", he may still be walking at five miles an hour, whereas somebody who's 5'6", is not gonna be walking at five miles an hour. So in terms of speed, um, maybe there's not a whole heck of a lot you can do it, unless you want to run with a ruck, which I don't recommend for uh, loads above 30% of body weight, really 25% body weight. But I don't know that that's that important. Um, you know, the, the uh, military, the army has done most of the work in rucking. You know, they consider a standard ruck pace to be four miles an hour because people can walk at four miles an hour. And if, you know, if you bake, break out your GPS watch and go out and walk at four miles an hour, you'll see that's a very deliberate pace. You know, um, it, it's a power walking pace. And so, um, you know, most of their tests and stuff are done assuming four miles an hour. So in my mind, progressing with rucking is not going faster. It's going heavier, mm -hmm. you know, so you may not be able to walk as fast as that six, five guy, but you may be able to carry a heavy load than you can mm -hmm. at that four mile an hour pace by just getting stronger. Um, so, uh, you know, that's, that's where the strength part comes in. You know, rucking's a little different than running in that respect. In running, we focus on running faster, but in rucking, you know, four miles an hour is about it. That's kind of like a standard pace, give or take a couple, you know, give or take a little bit. Um, and we improve by increasing load, you know, four miles an hour is about the pace we, we target on flat terrain. So if a guy was limited on time, a guy or, or a, a woman, if they were limited on time, and could really only put focus on one thing you would suggest focus on increasing the amount of weight on those rocks when training versus trying to go faster and cover more miles because like what i'll see a lot when people are doing their own training and they're reporting on what their training is for a week they're really focused on covering more and more and more miles and 
I don't want to say that they don't pay attention to weight, but there really seems to be an emphatic, um, a, a real emphasis on miles and or speed. And kind of what you're saying is, is if you're limited on time or if you only want to focus on one thing, it would be smarter to try to increase the amount of weight that you're training with each week or every other week or whatever and cover the same distance as opposed to staying at a lower weight and just trying to cover more and more and more and more miles. If you're, if you're trying to develop, uh, improve your, your ability to carry heavy loads. Yeah. We, you know, with, with running, you, you have pace possibilities from say a four minute mile to a 20 minute mile. It's a pretty wide range, but with rucking, there's just not that much variation, you know, uh, three to four and a half miles an hour is about it, you know? Uh, so where you get your progressive overload is either in duration or intensity and intensity is load. Um, and, and, you know, when you combine that with the fact that the heavy rucks translate to performance on uh, lighter rucks and heavier rucks, whereas the lighter rucks don't, if you're really, really time limited, then the heavier rucks can get it done. Um, you know, but, uh, but I would recommend for an optimal program, uh, both long duration rucks and heavy rucks, um, and depending on how your program is structured, you know, you could do one of each per week or, uh, a once a week ruck alternating a heavy ruck, a heavy short duration ruck and a light long duration ruck. And that's, that's what I really, um, uh, like best either, uh, twice a week or once a week, depending on how the rest of your program is structured. That was something I wanted to ask you about too. So in your, in your guide, you sort of, you lay out a sample week and in that sample week, and if I mess this up, please correct me. Yeah, sure. In, in that sample week, you kind of lay that out. You say, okay, an intensity ruck once a week, and then you give a volume chart on how much to increase by. Then you do an endurance ruck once a week. You throw an optional run in two days of strength training and then a day of rest. Is that the outline for the most part when you look at a five day, a five day stretch on something like an ideal training program? Yeah, that's one way that it could be um, organized. And it's just, it's just a, I don't know, it's a template that I came up with working with uh, lots of individuals who were really busy and, uh, you know, we're looking for a simple program to get as good as at rucking as they could. Um, you know, people who have, have a busy life and can't have a complex training program. And that, that worked particularly well. Yeah, I liked uh, a couple of days of strength training, um, a couple of rucks, uh, a run thrown in there, maybe an optional run, and then uh, a metabolic conditioning day. So they were training most days of the week, but uh, you know, some of the days were short and, um, and uh, at least one optional. And when we were rucking twice a week, one was an intensity ruck focusing on increasing load over time, uh, done as intervals, like 10 to 15 minute intervals. So put a heavy ruck on four miles an hour, 10, 15 minutes, drop the ruck, have some water, shake it out for a couple of minutes, put the ruck back on and go at it again. Uh, and then the long duration ruck was you know, putting on a lighter weight and just going for a long walk, basically. Um, and, and, you know, wrapped around that was a bit of running and some simple, simple strength training. And that works really, really well. 
on those on those rocks so we live in idaho a lot of folks i work with tend to live somewhere in the west but not always a lot of a lot of times they're back east or down south and and areas that don't have a lot of elevation change may even have very few hills in the city that they live in so when you're looking at these endurance rocks and you're looking at these intensity rocks intensity automatically makes most folks think of i need to find the steepest hill possible and complete this at the percent of the body weight recommended by by mike does i mean i know that elevation changes vertical feet gained obviously plays a role is it an absolute that you have to find is that is that part of the variables that you would suggest people aim for on those intensity or those endurance rocks or can it literally be as simple as throwing on a pack at the recommended weight going to your park or down your street and simply walking in a straight line um yeah you know if you have the terrain to work with go for it i think that's great especially if you're training for performance in that kind of terrain and you're just going to have to adjust the pace accordingly you're not going to walk four miles an hour um up a hill with a heavy heavy ruck on uh, so that, those pace those paces are for uh, flat terrain so uh but you know it wouldn't really change the program that significantly you know if i'm going to be training in some hilly terrain with some significant climbs uh, for a light long duration ruck i've got a lighter pack on and i'm just going out and walking walking the distance for time if it's a heavier ruck you know in that 10 minute period i may get only halfway up you know the first hill um but in that case it's more uh, effort based than pace based you know uh um and, and I'm still doing it the same way as intervals and dropping the pack after 10 to 15 minutes, grabbing some water, you know, relaxing for a minute and then picking the pack up and going at it. So it doesn't really change things too much. I'm just, um, I'm uh, accommodating my program to the terrain in terms of pace mainly. Hello. Yeah. I think that I love that answer too. Cause you know, a lot of times, of course, in a nutrition program, the, the question that gets asked with that is, well, how do I adjust my nutrition? And it's always so different, right? I mean, and, and one of the things you'd highlighted in your um, in your guide, you kind of just briefly mentioned it was the Pandoff equation, which is equation, of course, I'm, I'm familiar with, but a part of the Pandoff equation and what makes it a bit unique from other um, calculators that estimate how many what the energy expenditure is for a certain exercise is it takes into account the type of terrain, right? So the difference between being in sand, being in dirt, being in mud, being on blacktop, being on gravel, because obviously if you're in sand and trying to hike uphill with a weighted pack on, the the energy expenditure is going to be significantly greater than if you were in your neighborhood on blacktop, even with the same amount of weight. So yeah, I think that those variables, like you were talking about, it's not necessarily universal and you've got to adjust the expectation and adjust the plan according to what you got. Yeah, the spirit of the plan doesn't really change necessarily with terrain, uh, but the details do. You know, if, if you know, you're training a flat terrain, then those paces are great. Just, just go with the pace, you know, but obviously sand or hills or whatever, you're going to have to adjust the pace. But the spirit of the plan remains the same you know you've got a long duration focus or an intensity focus for example for the for the rucks and to to be clear i want to make sure i don't confuse anybody here um 
almost all of this rug training research was done in the context of a strength and a run training program. Um, again, because it's military and that's, that's just what we do. Um, so there has not been much uh, research looking at standalone ruck training. And so, you know, from that standpoint, when, uh, when, uh, we, when I talk about uh, rucking every two weeks was just fine, that does not mean rucking every two weeks and that's all the training that you do is just fine. Uh, that's probably not gonna cut it at all. What the Army research has shown is that in the context of a strength and a running program, rucking every two weeks is pretty doggone effective and people could get pretty good at rucking even with that uh, infrequent of uh, uh, ruck uh, performance, you know, that only every two weeks they could still get pretty doggone good. But that's in the context of still doing some strength training and running. That's a great, that's a great clarification because that's what, I mean, those are questions that will definitely come up is, you know, well, is, is twice a week enough? And it's like, well, yeah even the outline of the program and, and the two-part guide that you've set up clearly explains the value of, and there's other programs that, you know, I, I do some consulting with that really emphasize you, you can make, like you're saying, you can make, it's better than sitting on the couch, <laughs> you know, going yeah. out and hiking twice a week. Sure. But you're missing some significant advantages if you're not doing some additional strength training. And, one of the things that you had pointed out in your guide is the type of strength tra training is basically built around compound movements versus like your typical gym bro splits of tri press downs and, you know, s some of the typical things that you might see a lot of people in the gym doing. Can you just kind of highlight for us why compound movements are what they are and why they're more effective than you know, your typical back and buys and chest and tries and those kind of some of those isolated splits that you see a lot of people in a, in a traditional gym doing. Yeah. Well, um, you know, the body is not a series of body parts. It's one flexible piece, you know, and, uh, muscles work in unison uh, with one another. They cooperate, they work together. So when you put a load on your back, um, you know, there's, uh, dozens and dozens of muscles that are uh, working together in a coordinated way to keep your spine rigid, to maintain proper posture, to absorb that load every time you take a step. And so, uh, you know, segmented training like bicep curls and tricep kickbacks are not going to get that done. You need to load your body in sort of that same kind of a way. So bigger, more compound movements like uh, power cleans from the floor or, or deadlifts or, uh, front squats or, you know, those types of movements that uh, force your body to act as one piece to overcome a load are typically much, much more effective for load carriage performance, you know, and really for athletic performance in general, because that's, that's uh, how the body works in real life. There's never uh, a, a performance movement you're going to do in real life that isolates a single muscle. Um, it's, it's always, um, you know, a whole host of muscles acting together and with, you know, carrying a heavy load on your back, you know, it starts with muscles in the toes and works its way all the way up to traps and neck muscles and everything in between. So we, we've got to do some integrating. Uh, it doesn't have to be all compound lifts, but there needs to be some 
basic compound list to kind of like stitch everything together, if that makes sense. You know, um, so you can have some segmented strength, but there's got to be some basic, you know, big movements like uh, power cleans or deadlifts or, or, or squats or, uh, you know, some uh, heavy kettlebell swings or uh, those kind of things to stitch everything together. Uh, yeah, no, perfect, perfect explanation. It, you'd mentioned earlier kind of a rep range between 3 and 15. Is there anything that you would suggest if someone's got to focus on X, they should veer more towards that lower uh, rep scheme? Or if they've got a focus on Y, they should veer more towards that upper rep scheme of 15 reps in a set? Uh, yeah, maybe a little bit, you know, if your focus is on strength, you need them both really. Um, cause the higher rep stuff will support the lower rep stuff. Um, if your focus is, you know, mainly just on hypertrophy or building muscle, you probably should bias more towards the higher rep stuff and, and, uh, uh the lower rep ranges are not going to be quite as important. Um, you know, although there's not a, there's not necessarily a heck of a lot of difference between the strength and hypertrophy programming. You should probably be doing some of both. So there should be uh, um, some training in the higher in, rep end of that range with uh, lower rest periods in the range of say 30 seconds rest between sets and some training in the lower rep range with longer rest periods, say two to three minutes between sets. And so you should, ideally you should be doing both, um, either, um, uh, during the course of the week, you know, you could do some, some high rep stuff and some low rep stuff during the course of the same week, or you can do it in a systematic linear progression way where you focus for two or three weeks on, on higher reps. And then you step the reps down for two or three weeks. And then you step them down again for two or three weeks. You know, the research has shown that those two approaches are basically, about the same in terms of results. It just depends on what you like to do. I think. Is it, is it as simple as regardless of the rep schemes and the sets and, and, and those type of things, is it as simple as just equating total volume and building that over time? Like for example, you know, if, if the first three weeks you were doing three sets of 10, uh, three sets of 10 for bench press at a hundred pounds for a total volume of, let's say 3000 pounds. And then the yeah. following week, it were to drop to, uh, four sets of seven reps. And I'm just going to make up numbers for the sake of math. That was at 4,000 pounds. And then the third three week block, it went to 5,000 pounds. Is it as simple as basically equating total volume over time, regardless of the rep scheme in terms of progressive overload, increasing performance or increasing strength? Um, I don't know. I've never really calculated volume, you know, uh, I think, um, you can get a pretty good intuitive sense of it without having to resort to those kinds of things. Um, Am you I know, being a little too OCD? <laughs> well, I mean, maybe I, I think it's even simpler than that. You know, I think if you're uh, if you're using big compound movements and, you know, we're in the, uh, the uh, say, three rep range, we're doing heavy triples. You're not going to do a lot of sets. I mean, that's just not going to be a lot of volume because uh, we're now we're moving some big heavy weights and, uh, you know, in a deadlift and a squat and a bench press and a standing overhead press, that kind of a thing. So, uh, you know, you're just not going to do a lot of volume when you get into maybe more of the mid rep ranges, um, 
seven, eight repetitions, you know, a minute, two minutes between sets, you can probably handle uh, more volume. And, and then with the lighter, uh, higher reps, you're just going to get a lot more volume because there's more reps. So uh, I think you develop a feel for it without having to really do the math. I don't know that there's any numbers that correlate exactly. You're still staying pretty much in that same range, you know, two to eight sets, basically, you know, um, but, uh, you know, with big compound movements, heavy weights, you know, heavy weights, lower reps, you're just not going to do as much volume as you will with lighter weights and high reps. Yeah. I think that's a good explanation. So I appreciate your time. I've got well, one more question I wanted to wrap it up with, but this has been this has been great. You and I talked a little bit prior to pressing record, and you had highlighted in um, your interview with the Exo Mountain Gear guys. It's episode one thirty two, I think, on their podcast. Something towards the end of your podcast on there, which really resonated with me, and you said, "When I'm programming for someone." I write it out and then I look at it and take stuff out. I start taking stuff out until I take so much stuff out that I feel like if I took anything else out, it would compromise the performance of the program. And then you highlighted something called the minimum effective dose. Could you touch on that, explain your thought process when you're creating programs for folks and what the minimum effective dose is and why that's important? Oh yeah. I mean, I, man, I just cannot emphasize enough how important this is and how uh, clarifying it was in writing programming. Um, it's, it's, this is it, man. This is the be all and end all of programming. There's two philosophies to programming. One is I take a look at what somebody's trying to do and I try to put in as much as I can to get towards that goal as much fancy stuff as I can. Hey, I heard about this thing. Maybe that would help. Um, and then you just start stacking stuff in until you feel like you can't put anything more in the program. That's one approach to a program, right? Um, another approach to programming is, is exactly what you said. I write out what I think is a reasonable program. And then I take a look at it and I say, what could I cut out of here? Is there anything I could cut out of here and, and still feel good about this program? Okay. I can cut that out. Is there anything else I can cut out of here and still feel good about the program? Well, yeah, they probably don't really need to do this. So I cut it out and then I cut it out until that program is really, really lean, a really lean program. Um, and once I get down to the point where I'm, I'm, I feel uncomfortable with cutting anything else out, I know the program's perfect because I don't have any fluff in there. Um, people typically don't have time to deal with fluff. If you give them a lot of fluff, you don't know what they're focusing on. I want them focusing on what's important in the program, the thing that's gonna uh, give them the, the big bang for the buck, the important core of the program. If I have too much stuff in there, they may be focusing on the fluff and not the stuff, you know what I mean? Like I, I may have somebody spending 30 minutes on a foam roller and then, uh, you know, two sets of, of whatever. You know, uh, I want to focus in on what's going to bring the biggest results. And I have to do that by cutting all that stuff out. If you put it in there, probably, they're probably going to do it. So that's my way to get people to prioritize. And it's a way to get me to be smarter about training. I need to know why everything's in there. If I have something in a program, I got to know why I put it in there specifically. And I got to know that it's going to be something that's effective. So it creates discipline for me and for the individual that I'm working with both. Um, and so uh, simplicity, I think, is super, super important. And it, and it results in some programs sometimes that look 
you know, almost too simple. And, and, um, and, you know, as, as you and I discussed that sometimes people might look at it and it might not be appealing because it looks too simple, but man, they really work because we've kept what's really important in there, you know? Um, and so that, that's super important. You know, as if you're an individual working with athletes and you're writing programming, um, you know, it's, I found the, the simplest approach to be best. Like we talked about, I established point A where they are now, which normally takes more time than anything else. <laughs> um, establishing where they are now, their experience, what they know, injuries, um, you know, what they've been doing for training, trying to get a feel for what their fitness level is. And then uh, point B, what their goal is and where they want to be. And I, and I tell you, if you spend the time to do that, connecting point A to point B becomes immediate. It becomes clear for you and the client both. And uh, you can see a simple path to get there. Then you can start putting down that, that simple stripped down program. So uh, yeah, simplicity. I can't overemphasize that. Simplicity is the key to good programming. Yeah, I love that. Minimum, the minimum amount that you oh. can do to see the maximum benefit is I just love that. Yeah, I love that I'm sorry. I didn't, I didn't touch on that yet. That's always the mindset. That's the philosophy behind it is what's the minimum effective dose. And it, if you think of it as like medication, um, you know, when a doctor prescribes medication for you, they want to give you the minimum effective dose because more than that, you're not going to get more cure. You're just going to get more side effect. Right. And so trainings like that, too. I want the minimum effective dose because more than that, I'm not getting more fitness. I'm just getting more broken, more injuries, uh, more fatigue, that kind of a thing. So I'm always thinking in terms of minimal effective dose. Can I do more with less, less time, um, you know, uh, fewer varieties of, of exercises, that kind of a thing. So that's, that's super important. That's great, Mike. I appreciate you coming on, taking time out of your day, sharing your wisdom with everyone. If people are interested in, in finding you or finding your resources, what are some places that they could look you up at? And I'll link those two guides, but anything else out there that you've got that you want people to be steered towards? Oh, well, you know, I'm pretty much retired. Uh, <laughs> I don't do, I, I, I'm not, I don't do this as a profession anymore. Uh, but, uh, you know, if you Google Mike, Mike Prevost and uh, rucking or any, any type of fitness, you'll see lots of stuff uh, out there that I've written. Um, I'm always available for uh, military law enforcement, first responders. I, I still um, dabble and I will always spend time, spend the time to, to sit down and discuss training programming with anybody in any of those professions uh, for absolutely free. That's not something I would ever charge money for. So uh, you could find me on the web and, and figure out how to how to uh, find me pretty easily if you uh, if you Google uh, I'm at Mike Prevost PhD at uh, gmail.com is a good email address and uh, I'll be happy to help uh, anybody in those categories. Other than that, I'm really not publishing much or doing anything active in that field anymore. Well, that's awesome. And you're a humble guy. I'll brag on you. He's got a YouTube channel that he leaves up and there's some great videos on there. The guides are that the guides should i would pay for the guides but they're completely free uh, and i'll link those in the show notes so anyone who's interested can check them out and steer your your the extension of your offer to help guys out who need help in that military law enforcement a lot of you know a lot of the folks that listen to this do fall in that category so i'm sure that they'll appreciate that and thank you again i appreciate it i i love your material it's so clear and concise and i know a lot of folks will get help out of this 
Well, great. Thanks for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to spread a little knowledge. Big thanks to Mike for coming on to the podcast and everything that I mentioned in the show that we talked about will be linked below. So both guides of his, I'll link his YouTube as well as the first podcast that he did with the Exo Mountain Gear guys. So appreciate you joining us. If you've got any suggestions for future shows, comments, questions, etc., send those to info at b2pnutrition.com. We look forward to seeing you back for the next episode. Have a great week.